0: Welcome. I am your host, Leto Armitage. Please take the large red couch and help yourself to the tea on the side table. It is Monday, October the 9th, 2023, and this is season one, episode two of The Snuggery. Each Monday this month, I will discuss a few vampire movies that merge the titillating and terrifying, and today we look at a series of films that were inspired by a vampire novel with a sensual subtext that predates Bram Stoker's masterpiece. The Vampire Lovers was released in 1970 by the iconic Hammer Films. It starred Ingrid Pitt, George Cole, Kato Mara, and Peter Cushing. It was Hammer's last film to use American financing, and the first to feature nudity. It is based loosely on Carmilla, a novel that is now in the public domain by Sheridan La Fanu. Sir Peter Cushing probably needs no introduction. The Hammer films made him a horror icon, and later he became known for his role as Grand Admiral Moff Tarkin of Star Wars, though his career spanned 60 years and over 100 films, in addition to stage, television, and radio roles. Interestingly, Dawn Adams is not listed as a starring role on this film, but she is featured as the Countess. She was quite the looker in 1950 when MGM Studios signed her to an exclusive seven year contract. She never became a huge star, but had a number of Hollywood roles, including a small part in the classic Singing in the Rain. She was even a princess after marrying an Italian prince in 1954 though they separated and later divorced. Though the divorce did not happen until 1971, meaning that in The Vampire Lovers, the countess is played by an actual princess. Ingrid Pitt is the femme fatale of the film. She was a Polish Jew who as a child spent three years in a Nazi concentration camp with her mother, but escaped. After that, she dodged communist police, married an American serviceman, Moved to the States, divorced him, kept his name, returned to Europe, waited tables, and then became a glamour horror icon. It's a life worthy of its own novel or film. Her beauty and gaze enchanted people, and only five years before The Vampire Lovers, she had her first film role, an uncredited bit part in Dr. Zhivago. Within three years, she also had another small role in the classic A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum and then a credited role in the Richard Burden, Clint Eastwood classic, Where Eagles Dare. In the film The Vampire Lovers, Ingrid Pitt had a number of nude scenes, and she said that she became very fond of doing them, not only because she was an exhibitionist, but because directors were always so scared that she would back out, that she was treated to luxury when nude, to be made comfortable, and she quickly adapted to it clearly a woman after my own heart. When later asked about being exploited, she responded, how can you be exploited? When you go into it knowing exactly what it is, they let you back out of it and pay you fairly. Kate O'Mara plays the governess and also receives a starring credit, though the two ingenues do not. O'Mara played a varied career across stage, film, and television. Her performance was strong enough during the filming of The Vampire Lovers that Hammer offered her an exclusive contract, but she turned it down for fear of being typecast. Of our two victim maidens, both have some interesting bits of note. Madeline Smith starred in a handful of horror films and worked outside the horror genre, but became well enough associated with Hammer that she was the cover model for a coffee book entitled Hammer Glorer. Pippa Steele had a relatively quiet career and film, but did appear in the second film, Lust for a Vampire, in a minor role. The film itself is an adaptation of a gothic novel that I mentioned earlier by Sheridan La Fanu, published in 1872, and I don't feel that I can do a better summary, so I'm going to recite from Wikipedia here, quote, one of the early works of vampire fiction, predating Bram Stoker's Dracula by 26 years. First published as a serial in The Dark Blue in 1871 to 1872, the story is narrated by a young woman preyed upon by a female vampire named Carmilla, later revealed to be Mercola, Countess Karnstein, Carmilla being an anagram of Mercola. The character is a proto typical example of the lesbian vampire, expressing romantic desires toward the protagonist. The story is often anthologized and has been adapted many times in film. End quote. Including in this work. The film opens with a Count Hartog, who has lost his sister to a vampire, and he attempts to hunt the responsible creatures down, he follows them to Castle Karnstein, where he destroys at least one. We quickly shift to a ball gown thrown by a general, played by Sir Peter Cushing. Emma and her father have had to leave the party that the general is throwing for Emma's friend, his niece, Laura. Soon Marcilla arrives in the custody of the Countess, and during the evening the Countess is called away unexpectedly and the general offers to watch over Marcella, letting her stay with him while the Countess goes on her journey. The nature of the Countess and a strange horse-riding figure are never explained, but you can easily make the connection in the second film. During Marcella's stay, Laura slowly becomes weakened while having nightmares and eventually dies of anemia. The depiction of the vampiric Marcella with Laura is sexual, but not sensual, a near kiss diverting to the cheek, planting kisses on the swell of the breast. Ingrid Pitt has said that the core depiction of Marcella is not meant to be lesbian, but as she played it, asexual. With Laura now past, Carmilla disappears, not to be seen again in that house, and the death is a linked mystery that the family cannot explain. Nearby, Mr. Morton and his daughter, Emma, who did not meet the Countess in her charge at the ball, encounter them at a staged accident in the woods, though now she is no longer being called Marcilla but Carmilla. Emma is the innocent ingenue, and has that genuine girl-next-door quality to her. She's built, sexy, but feels genuine. And they took a light touch to her makeup and dress to keep her from looking too sophisticated. Soon, Emma is having nightmares of a large pussycat stalking her at night, and she begins weakening. In contrast, during the day, Emma and Carmilla grow closer and closer. Where Carmilla's responses were often creepy with Laura, they seem affectionate with Emma. When they flirt and play, the scenes are not erotic, but by all accounts, the mood on set wasn't sexual either. Neither actress found the filming arousing, but they did have fun. Indeed, I've read multiple accounts of them breaking down in laughter when Pitt would be leaning over her and the fangs would fall out into her co-star's cleavage. And, frankly, naked women laughing and having fun is very sexy in my book. From there, the movie progresses in a predictable pattern. It's not high drama, and it won't scare you, but it is fun to watch, and especially recommended if you enjoy 60s and 70s horror cinema. That sentiment applies to our next two films as well, but I will say I think this is the best of the trilogy, though not the one with the most nudity. Lust for a Vampire, marketed under a few titles, was certainly marketed in the U.S. where it earned an R for nudity and gore in its 1971 release. I don't understand the rating for gore, but... I do understand the rating for nudity. For a company that had only recently had their first movie with any the predecessor to this one, they adopted it here in a fashion that would make a teen spring break movie proud. Jut Stinsgaard, I hope I pronounced that correctly, a Danish model turned actress, plays the resurrected Carmilla named Mercola here. We spend a good chunk of time in this film looking at her cleavage or topless, and I contend this was an excellent choice on the part of the director. Now, I do not understand the fetishization of any particular race, but there is something special about a topless Scandi girl that comes off as both wholesome and sexy, the image of the girl next door that still lives in my subconscious, perhaps from growing up when I did, with its media images. Although she had a robust career, Ute never made it big, doing everything from sex comedies to hosting a game show. By 1972, she retired from acting and moved to the United States, where, for quite a long time, she distanced herself from her previous risque appearances. Susanna Lee in the movie plays Miss Playfair, the voice of reason in the character who actually advances the plot with all the other characters either being vampiric murderers or mind-numbing idiots until someone has to step in towards the end to push the events to a, I'll be honest, unsatisfying conclusion. There were several things I didn't like trope-wise in the film, and towards the end, I began to wonder if they just assumed people would be drinking while watching this, and too drunk to understand how completely senseless and non-directional the ending of the film was, non-conclusive, not intentionally vague, but just as if the director dropped the script and walked off the set, and so filming just continued, and the editors were left trying to put something together with the footage they had. Fortunately, that did nothing to dismiss my enjoyment of a score of young blondes and brunettes, all between 16 and a 19 and a half, prancing around in, well, frankly, what can only be called 90s. Okay, I admit, they were probably older than that, but I do not pass a Monty Python reference without using it. There are obligations to meet among all of us. I want to note that Susanna Lee was actually born Sandra Ann Smith, but was the goddaughter of Vivian Lee, whose surname she adopted for her work. She had a relatively short career, despite clearly having ambitions, but did act opposite Elvis Presley and another Hammer film before retiring. Mary Barbara Jefford also makes multiple appearances in the film, and I don't know how Hammer scored an OBE for this. The actors had already earned it years before this role for her thespian work, including a great deal of Shakespeare in an absolutely phenomenal adaptation of James Joyce's Ulysses. It does not truly capture the book, but I would contend that no film can. Nonetheless, it is excellent. And tragically, her role was not topless. The plot of this film is very simple. The Count and Countess Karnstein return their daughter to undeath and enroll her in a local girl's finishing school. Sexy bloodletting ensues, and the body count begins to climb as the Count and Countess as help their undead daughter hide her sins, although they never seem to do anything themselves. Carmilla falls in love with a visiting writer, who is an absolute dolt, and there is no rhyme or reason to her becoming infatuated with him. And as they fall for each other, he spends the entirety of the movie being a useless twat. Damn writers, they're always thinking with their... pens. And that brings us to the third film, Twins of Evil. The third film of the trilogy was released during the same year. No one said Hammer was lazy. Twins of Evil, also entitled Twins of Dracula. Hammer continued to embrace their role of lovers of pretty girls. Marie and Madeline Collison were identical twins and Playboy Playmates only a year earlier in October of 1970, perhaps while they were filming this. The magazine was filled with the expected advertisements for turntables, liquor, cigarettes, boots, and wool jackets, along with some cultural touchstones, such as an interview with William Kunstler, an attorney who defended the Chicago 7, and an article on the problem of gun violence in America. Ah, Things have not changed as much as I would like, I suppose. They were the first twins to be a dual playmate of the month and had lovely charms that I assure you look as gropable now as they did then. Tragically, the director of Twins of Evil did not get the memo that when you put sweet, sexy women in a horror movie, you should plumb every possible excuse to have them as nude as possible. Now, this is not my opinion. This is a simple rule that we should learn to follow. The sisters do some decent, if over-the-top acting opposite an extremely impressive Peter Cushing, who returns into the third movie of the trilogy, though not playing the same role at all as the first. However, if you are concerned that anybody might come across as ridiculous in their performance, you do not have to worry about Sir Cushing or the lovely twins, because that role is stolen in full by the living Count Karnstein, who seeks to embrace evil like his ancestors because he is bored, and in the course of things accidentally reanimates the dormant Marcala as her parents did in the second film. The living Count Karnstein is a would-be devil worshipper in the vein of a comical Marquis de Sade. As a sexy film, this movie really does not deserve a place on the list. But it is the third of the trilogy, and certain forms must be followed. Nonetheless, I think it is a fun light horror movie for Spooktober. There is also a fourth film that some claim is a successor to Twins of Evil, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter, which references Count Karnstein, but otherwise includes no presence of Mercala, which I consider critical to be a continuation of this series. The film also hosts the considerable, um, shall we say, talents of Caroline Munro, So Captain Kronos is worth watching for that. Anyway, that is enough for today. I hope you will await the next podcast when I return with two more recent films, one starring an innocent girl next door and one a divine bad boy. So until we meet again, I'm Leto Armitage, reminding you to have a good time and don't do anything I wouldn't do, or indeed many that I would. Goodbye.